Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Bauman and this is the Atelier Forum podcast. This week we're going to be talking to an incredible representational artist. His name is Adrian Gottlieb. In this episode, Adrian is going to share with you some insights into his early experiences as a student of drawing and painting in Florence. We also drill a little bit deeper and talk about the subjects he wished he would have studied a little bit earlier on in his student career. We also got into another subject that I absolutely love because it's so close to my own experience. We talked about how, as artists, we have a tendency to want to over-control certain situations. In this instance, we were talking about working with a model and trying to achieve a certain look that will result in a really great artwork. Eventually, this led us to talking about over-controlling the situation and actually being the thing that stands in the way of achieving that result. Anyway, let's get on to the rest of the show and my conversation with Adrian Gottlieb. Well, actually, it sounded like you were saying something more relevant, but uh, that is an amazing recording studio you have. All recording studios for YouTubers and social media types look great here and look like the cockpit of a submarine here. They look completely like <laughs> right. a hot mess of gaffer's tape and like lighting and different armatures and things on the other side. Well, uh, you're way ahead of me because I tried... Uh, uh, setting up a shoot, uh, setting up my camera on a boom uh, so that it would get out of the way and I could still reach all my materials. Mm -hmm. And I still haven't figured out the whole problem that if the if somebody walks by, you know, the camera immediately starts shaking. Yeah. So you're way ahead in the process than me. I mean, I hate I to nerd out over non-relevant things, but what camera are you using? Actually, no, skip that. No, How do first you get of all... it so that you don't get a shaky camera? <laughs> First of all, podcasts are all about nerding out, as I understand it. Like yeah. the they're the part of the media where you take 30 minutes to unpack something as simple as what I'm about to tell you. And it changed yeah. my life, literally, understanding that this thing existed. Um, we used to live in Jersey City, which is, of course, just adjacent to Manhattan. So you have access to all these uh -huh. great Manhattan shops. Uh, one of them is called B&H Photo, which I used to like live in. When I started doing online work, I lived at B&H Photo. It's like Santa's yeah. workshop for, for people doing audio video stuff. One of the things that they sell there that was so amazing, because I used to use these things called C-stands, right? Which is basically an upgrade on a tripod. Yep. A tripod has these masks that come out like this. A C-stand goes straight down and then has uh, these like three legs that come out. Pretty decent if you have a concrete floor or you don't need to worry about that high center of gravity. What I started using right. though, and this will work if you have a ceiling that's probably um, within a meter of being an average height, there's something called a very pole, right? So it's a variable tension pole. Uh, it's a spring loaded pole about that big around that you can put at any point in the ceiling and lock into place. Uh, and it basically, it acts, it does everything that you would want a C-stand to do, but it'll never shake because it's pushing against the floor and the ceiling together. Oh, and that's called a variable tension pole. Just very pole for short. There's a couple different companies that make them. They're usually sold in twos. But what you're going to have to buy along with it is something called a super clamp, which basically allows you to, and they make a lot of different types of super clamps, but it allows you to attach various different things to it. So you could have, uh -huh. for instance, if I was trying to set up something like what you're talking about, where you, you need like a vertical mast and you need something that kind of comes out from that. There's another tool. Um, it's made by Manfrotto and it's basically three joints. You have a joint here joint here and a joint here. Um, and basically you can kind of get a camera just about anywhere you want it. Like when I'm live streaming, I have one right next to my head so that 
that I'm getting as close to to being, you know, what I'm actually seeing as possible. When I'm filming for right. other projects, I usually come in at like 45 degrees with a polarizing mm -hmm. filter for for paintings. Uh, because I, I I can fix it in post, you know, you have Final Cut Pro or you have Adobe Premiere or whatever, you can fix perspective. But if you're if you're going live, you want it to be in as close as you can get. I tried uh, doing a post in uh, using Adobe uh, Premiere uh, on my old, this was a bunch of years ago, I had a, a 2012 MacBook Pro and uh, processing even just a half hour video. It was like, well, I'm not using my computer for the next two days. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that's a very intensive stuff. I tried briefly getting into it and the editing uh, kind of broke me, I got to admit. And you're saying you started out with Premiere. I did the same thing. And Premiere is like, is Premiere is like a Ferrari. And like, all I really need to do right. is like drive to the grocery store. It's not really worth it. Uh, I actually right. started using Final yeah. Cut Pro because it's a lot more like iMovie, which is a 10 year old could use iMovie, a 15 year old could right. use uh, Final Cut Pro, which is just about my regular skill level in, in terms of video editing. Uh, also, the other thing, and this is this really jammed me up when I first started out. If you ever have any ambition to video edit, and, and maybe by the way, maybe everybody else is smart and I'm thick and I did this the wrong way. Uh, but do all your editing on an external hard drive. So get like a five terabyte hard drive. You can get a solid state drive even if you want to, and put your editing library on that drive because otherwise what's going to happen is your editing software is going to be generating files in like rendering files and they can right. balloon up to like hundreds of gigabytes so if you're doing that right. on your computer's hard drive th this is what happened to me i got uh, completely jammed up i had to like get on the phone with apple support and figure out what was happening you, you paralyzed your computer completely <laughs> paralyzed it but now now I have like around my studio, dozens and dozens of these just external hard drives um, filled with wow. raw footage and editing files and stuff. And uh, it keeps your computer running really, really super smoothly. Yeah, well, I mean, you're doing a great job now. I mean, it's a pretty slick operation. I appreciate that. Adrian, this podcast is about you. We're talking okay. about you and, and all the cool kidding. stuff you have done. My first, if I could, if I could choose an entry point, you were probably a couple generations before me at the Florence Academy, right? So I, I arrived there in 2004. I just wanted to get your kind of entry point to that world because I, it's certainly for us, it's kind of a touch point where, where we'll have a lot of kind of common experiences. But there's always this kind of mythology about previous generations. And I just wanted to get your, your vibe upon entry and, and, and what year that was. So that was 1999 that I first joined. Um, I was only going to uh, attend for one semester just to try it out because I thought at the time that I would be going with Charles Cecil. And because uh, I had studied at Cecil Studios for uh, three summer intensives. And they were, after graduating with a BA in illustration, uh, I was then freed up to, you know, go at some other point in the summer. And uh, Cecil was filled up. 
So I applied to the Florence Academy, uh, thinking I was just going to be there until there was freed up, uh, until a spot was freed up at Cecil. And instead, I loved it. And yeah. uh, I just started kind of uh, staying at the hostels uh, until, you know, I missed my flight home and just stayed in hostels until I could find a place to rent. Um, and I just stayed there, uh, until mid 2002 okay. until I could, uh, until I went to Los Angeles. Mm. You say when you yeah. started out and did that term that, that you were waiting for an opening at Cecil. Now I, I know, and I think, you know, as well, that certainly nowadays, if not back then, there's a pretty distinct difference in between the two schools. But did you did you oh, yeah, find absolutely. that in contrast to Cecil, you liked things mm -hmm. about FAA and that made you stay or or it was just you happened to like it. And so you were like, well, this is the path of least resistance. So I'll, I'll keep going here. <laughs> path of least resistance. Uh, well, uh, I think that the um, I at the time, uh, I believed that Cecil was very Charles Cecil was very good at teaching. Mm -hmm. uh the principles of painting mm -hmm. uh but i felt like uh, uh under daniel graves i felt like the uh the basics of drawing first were stressed more and mm -hmm. it seemed like uh a more um deliberate and focused foundation that they were uh teaching mm -hmm. and it just seemed like a good and solid path to take yeah. Uh, because at the end of it was good painting. You know, that was the uh, end result. Uh, but I felt like this was a more fundamental process. Mm -hmm. Listening to me say that, I also want to point out that that is probably a little unfair uh, because you can't really compare a summer intensive to the full year mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Uh, to be fair, I probably wasn't comparing apples to apples, but that was my impression at the time. Yeah. Uh, a, a more fair comparison would obviously be if I had taken a full year at Cecil and then a full year at the Florence Academy, but mm. how old was I? I think I was like at 23. That was mm -hmm. just the impression I had. What was, is your 23 year old <clears throat> self a lot like your? current age self which i'm gonna guess is 47 is that right damn dead on dead i was on. reading your bio and stuff so to be fair like okay, I, okay. I was well prepared to guess the age i just needed to do the math in my head but between you know 47 and and 23 uh would you say that that you've kind of grown up like the person you were at 23 more or less yes uh I'm still that guy, but a lot less arrogant. That's great. That's well, um, you know, uh, well, yeah. you know the. Uh, oh man, I always forget it. And I had to forget it on camera. Dunning Kruger. Yeah. Uh, the, the the problem is a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh, there's something. You, you know the oatmeal, the comic book, the the co online comic, and he illustrates Dunning Kruger. Okay. Uh, where when you first gain a little knowledge, just a little bit, uh, it is a thousand percent more knowledge than you had before. 
And so uh, the oatmeal illustrated that as Mount Stupid. Yeah. And then you learn more, and then uh, uh, your confidence goes from the top all the way to the bottom again mm -hmm. uh, once you start to learn what you don't know. Yeah. And then that graph where confidence and confidence really slowly go up again. Mm -hmm. And that's Dunning-Kruger. At least that's a, that's a component of it. Was that your experience? Uh, so absolutely yeah. uh i i don't know when that isn't the case because learning a little bit of knowledge mm. is uh a, a powerful feeling because mm -hmm. whereas you knew nothing before you know something mm. now that's an exhilarating feeling mm. right up until you learn enough to know that actually you just started yeah the the, re the only reason i ask uh adrian is because having gone to that school, I remember mm -hmm. examples of your work being around your your student work being around one painting in particular that I in my lifetime, I've never forgotten. It was one that I, I, I even I even asked actually after I left the, the school, <laughs> if there was any way to, uh, to to buy it or get it or I mean, it's an amazing it's an incredible figure painting. Anyway, the, the oh, point you. I want to make the, the point I, I want to make is <laughs> it depends upon what you'll think about it. But the the reason I, I I ask what that curve was like for you was that it seemed to me that you were somebody who as a student had a phenomenal aptitude for shape design and, and for creating a good impression, strong structural impression of the figure seemingly from very early on. What did that trough feel like? And at what point in your estimation, do you feel like you started that uptick? That trough actually uh, didn't happen until after the F8. Okay. And because at the time, uh, I don't know how instruction is done there anymore. I haven't known for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And so everything that I remember could be different now uh, for all I know. Uh, but at the time, there wasn't a lot of demonstration. Uh, uh, critiques were primarily verbal mm -hmm. and uh, uh, very little demonstration. And that trough actually didn't happen until the, I left the FAA because I think that the atelier system in Florence at the time was uh, very important. I, I, I've always, I still say to students that it's extremely important uh, to get some time studying uh, in Europe, uh, in particular Rome and Florence. But at the same time, there was kind of a, uh, a, a fantasy land about it. You were kind of like living, you know, living the dream. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were hard aspects of it that weren't really addressed. And I think one of those uh, one of those components was in the demonstration. That's taken for granted now. It's expected to do uh, demos. And I've seen your videos and you do an excellent job. I've even seen some uh, Stan Prokopenko. He does excellent demonstrations, but the first uh, demonstration 
where it wasn't just cursory or tangential, but it was a fundamental part of the teaching process was in Los Angeles when I first went there in 2002. And uh, I bombed my first demo. And it, it really taught me all of the weaknesses that I had in my approach. And I worked to clean those up as quickly as I could because bombing during, during a demo is a pretty painful thing to have to endure. And so uh, that was a really necessary, you know, set of foundational weaknesses to work out as quickly as possible. And so I, I'd say that that was my trough and then working my way slowly back up. I'm really glad that uh, I studied painting in uh, Florence because there, I think that the kind of sensitivity we have to what painting, good painting looks like, I think it started there. Mm -hmm. I think it started in Italy and then it worked its way out. And then we picked up many strengths along the way uh, back in the United States with uh, uh, really crucial foundational uh, drawing mm -hmm. principles. So the, the the trough was post FAA. Then then the experience yeah. of the three years that you um, that that you had there. If I relate it to, or if I ask this question from the perspective of my own experience, I always remember that there was this incredible amount of information that always seemed like it was right out in front of me. And I, I don't know that I really understood what I consumed until kind of after that fact, what you said That's that right. I thought was really interesting. Uh, and I, I think, you know, I, I share a little bit this experience too. I left the school. I well, actually, sorry, I didn't actually leave the school. I stayed there for like 12 years uh, uh, teaching. But I, I left the student studios and I left Florence eventually. And I realized there were these enormous, you know, train tunnel sized holes in what I was capable of doing. I, I could do the laundry list here, I could do two podcast mm -hmm. episodes on the things that I didn't know at that time. Uh, what was it you felt like you were confronting? The, the, the block in, uh, uh, creating your gesture, uh, creating your structure. I think that uh, one of the greatest uh, strengths of the FAA was also its greatest weakness, which is we learned how to push a painting to the end. We never spent any really solid constructive time, I feel, on the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we, we were using the site size technique. Uh, we weren't really relying so much on the canons of proportion uh, so much. So, you know, you would draw the top and then the bottom, you know, for your feet and, and uh, just kind of work your way out from there. Uh, now, I'm speaking purely for myself. Uh, that was never a very intuitive process for me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I always felt like there was something I was really missing. Uh, and I would make some really weird, goofy mistakes mm -hmm. uh, as a result of not thinking of the figure as a form, a, a logical form in three-dimensional space. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that the site sizes technique is really great, but when you add it to the canons of proportion and the mm -hmm. structural form 
uh, the figure. I think it, it, it clicks a lot more into place. Uh, so that's something I was personally running into. And then when I combined it with uh, lessons I learned in uh, Los Angeles, it really started to click more into place. But I also know exactly what you're saying about not knowing what you're consuming at the time, because also it took me years uh, to digest those lessons. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The uh, and, and the remarkable thing is that you can perform pre-digestion. Like, I think that very often I was <laughs> drawing better than I understood how to draw. Some of that, of course, would be insightful critiques, and some of it would be just that you're working hard at kind of mimicking what your, your instructors saw. But I, I wonder about this. This is, I, for the, the entire time in preparation for, for calling you, I've been thinking, I wonder if I can pull this off, or I wonder if we, frankly, could pull this off. But you're one of the best shape designers that I can think of in, in painting. And I just wondered, is it, is it humanly possible for two individuals on a podcast to have an interesting conversation about something as abstract as shape design? Now, if I toss you this topic and it falls as flat as it could possibly do, that's totally <laughs> fine and we can move on. <laughs> but I'm just gonna sure. toss that ball Let's over to you and see if we come up with something. Let's wing it. Yeah. So uh, what, 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 would, what would be the first ball you throw out? At 2D shape design. Now you, you brought it up and I think it's very, very apt for the site size method. And one of the, one of the problems that I encountered also with it was that realizing three-dimensional form doesn't come out of necessarily the strength of comparing 2D shapes. That being said, right. the strength of comparing 2D shapes is in the, the, I think, complexity and beauty of the design of those flat shapes. So a synthesis of those two is very important, but I want to say this, bef before you got into the second phase of your experience in education, how did you picture that, that 2D shape design world? I, I think a lot of my beginning development, at least it feels that way to me now, was putting the carriage before the horse. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was first uh, inspired by Rembrandt, so for me, I came into it and I stayed there for a long time thinking about uh, texture and light as the predominating uh, uh, importances uh, in creating a good painting. And of course, as you well know, uh, that's really eating your dessert before your vegetables. <laughs> and sure. so there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of, uh, frustrations that I had that if I put the horse before the carriage, I think I could have, you know, uh, I think I could have fast forwarded my education a lot more. Uh, so the way that I approached painting was in terms of, you know, after the drawing, of course, was in terms of uh, the hierarchy of light and edge control. Mm -hmm. And so how you turn edges away and of course, how you handle your shadows and your hierarchy of lights were the most important things to me. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, it wasn't until much later that I thought about the head as a rectangle, something with a corner. Yeah. And um, that changed a lot for me. Uh, so the planes of the head uh, were just really not stressed. 
And I remember coming into contact with my first of sorrow head. And I thought, well, this solves quite a lot of problems. And so a, a lot of really, uh, a, a, a lot of really easy to avoid uh, mm -hmm. issues were finally picked up then. So um, I assume they're teaching a lot more of the planes of the body and the planes of the head now, mm -hmm. uh, but mm. <laughs> really. <laughs> Yeah. I, I was okay. always a proponent of line. I was always a proponent of, uh, of form and sculpture. And I will tell you that at times it put me at odds with the uh, directors of the curriculum. Um, I mean, in any academic uh -huh. situation, you're going to have some well, you have frictional beautiful ideas. Outlines. You, have, hmm. you have beautiful outlines in your heads. And I really admire, I'm, I'm simultaneously... I simultaneously, I simultaneously love those outlines and find them completely counterintuitive uh, to the process of turning form in your environment. Mm. And so I think you've been able to marry an illustrative approach with a fine art approach that works really well. And I'm, I'm impressed by things that I don't do or wouldn't know how to do. And I would not know how to integrate hard outlines into the idea of turning form in its environment. Uh, so that, that's why you're probably not going to find those in my paintings, mm. because they run counter to turning form in the environment. But you make it work. I don't know how, but good job on that. <laughs> I think it's probably <laughs> an affinity for um, uh, the way that sculpture was taught at the Florence Academy at that time uh, that I was there with with Robert Bodum and his uh, his program. Was that active when you were there as well? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we were in, uh, I first started there at Via Luna, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, where the first term, uh, uh, the first incoming uh, drawing students went. And on the other side of the room with dividers were uh, Rob's uh, uh, sculpture program. They, uh, they do a particular thing in in the sculpture program that when I was taught to do ecorche sculpture, my instructor uh -huh. used that particular method and it was this idea of constructing through high point lines so that you would okay. you would basically if you wanted to sculpt the rib cage, you you would start with the the disc that they would start with, right So a profile view and you would create that shape, which is essentially it's an outline, right? And you would you sure. would turn to various views, creating various outlines and silhouettes, and then fill in the form in between. So I think it always, for me anyway, that created this, I guess, affinity for for the use of a line as a tool to determine plane shifts and plane breaks. And so I, I guess I really started to attach to that idea in my own in my own drawing as as well. Admittedly, though, it it comes with problems. It it does. It does have a tendency to flatten things out. So if you don't also at the same time exploit atmospheric opportunities, then you will have a picture right. that just looks like a relief sculpture kind of, you know. The other, the other thing I was really curious about, I mean, there's a dozen things really, but I wanted to actually go like pre-23, pre-academy, probably like pre-college. What was your kind of entry point into figuring out that you even wanted to do this stuff? I mean, sometimes it's it's as simple in people's lives. It's like a single book that happened to be around. But I, I always find that's a kind of interesting 
part to explore as a kind of genesis of your interest, because it's obviously snowballed into this massive thing. It's your life now that, that, that you work this way. Are you talking about like high school or the first grade or? If you started uh, drawing in the first grade, then that's when the story would start. Okay. In the first grade, I started drawing bombers, dropping bombs onto ships and then blowing them up. Yeah. Uh, I did that. Uh, and then that ballooned into a Garfield book, how to draw Garfield. And it started with the nose and then you built the eyes. And I drop, I drew those obsessively, uh, and then eventually got into watercolor, um, which I used about as wrongly as you can imagine, because we had those watercolor tubes, and not just the the kind that you dip into a disc and wet it. And so, because I had a tube of watercolor, I poured it out. And then I would take the brush and just put it down like oil paint, right. which worked about as well as you would imagine. Classic. And then I learned about, and then I learned about oil paint, and I was like, "Well, this makes way more sense." And that was in high school. Uh, so yeah, I've just been working with that in between using uh, pastels, which is like the yeah. poor man's oil painting. Yeah, at least that's but, how it's called before. <laughs> so, so you've you've painted it somewhat as like this uh, linear ramping up of uh, of different experiences. But would you? What was the uh, inciting incident, if you could say, or inciting you know life circumstance? Like, why were you painting in, yeah, oil in high school? I didn't paint in oil story? in high school. Yeah, I guess so. Because I, I feel like everybody's uh, got some version of that. I mean, for some people, honestly, it's comic books, they just get into drawing because of comic books, and it just balloons right. outward, and they, they start doing other things. We're working off a pretty old memory here, but I think it was a visit to the Metropolitan Museum Park. Okay. Um, my family took me there, and uh, they have a pretty stunning collection of Rembrandts. I just thought I want to do that. That is, it was just magical. Mm -hmm. And so I just, once I learned, oh, he's using oils. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, my parents introduced me to oils uh, in high school and I started playing with those. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it was just chasing uh, that dragon, you know, mm -hmm. of painting like Rembrandt ever since. I haven't been like that uh, for a long time. I haven't really fixated on Rembrandt in a long time, uh, but that that is what got it started. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that that uh, a, a Rembrandt was a visceral experience, mm -hmm. um, especially if it was hung and lit well. And of course, that the Met it was. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's what kickstarted it. I was like, hey, just get me on the path to Rembrandt. Was there any difference and in so, experience for you between early and late period? Because the Rembrandt collection at the Met, of course, kind of spans the, 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 the not generations, but spans the, the career segments. That's true. Uh, but I was just obsessed with the sense of light and the mm. surface texture. Got it. And so obviously you're going to see more of that in his mid to late career. Uh, but hey, there's still an amazing sense of light in the first stages of mm. his career too. So nothing to mm. sneer at there. And so for 
I'd say the first post FAA for the next 15 years, it was just about underpainting and overpainting uh, uh, techniques for me. Uh, mm -hmm. Just whatever could get me to that end effect of luminosity uh, and surface texture, that's what I did. And so whether that was doing a Grisaille first or a Piambora uh, or the, um, oh man, this is embarrassing, but I haven't used the technique in 10 years. So I forget the name of my own technique. It's the Verdaccio uh, technique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, what finally uh, made me lose interest in that was when I got to St. Petersburg in 2012. Mm -hmm. This is before everything went to hell. Uh, and so you could just visit. I was on a job in uh, Helsinki and I learned that just by using the ferry to go from Helsinki to St. Petersburg, you had an automatic uh, two-day visa just by virtue of taking the ferry from Helsinki. And so my wife and I, my wife visited uh, while I was on job and then we went to St. Petersburg. I, I, I think that if the opportunity, if that window ever opens again, you got to go to the Russian Museum uh, mm -hmm. because that's where all the weapons are, as well as a host of contemporaries whose names I doubt a whole lot of people know. And yeah. it was just the most extraordinary painting uh, I have ever seen. The scale was like nothing I had ever seen. The pathos was like, like nothing I had ever seen. And that was my brush breaking moment. Besides the art just being absolutely phenomenal, uh, the scale and the pathos in particular, I mean, those were what really grabbed me, is there were no underpainting techniques. <laughs> sure. And I mean, and, 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 and that's not to say that there weren't underpainting techniques. Obviously, every artist has a way of blocking in uh, the painting to start with, but there were, there weren't clever secret techniques mm -hmm. it wasn't like okay build in this color then glaze in this color then start build up your texture in this way and then just, and yada 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 it, it, it was just they just put the paint down and it was just the correct colors on top of mag of uh, on top of a magnificent design yeah and i realized i've been placing my emphasis in all the wrong places so uh, I got rid of the Verdaccio, I got rid of the Piambora, and just really just wanted to tackle the painting itself. Once again, it's just a lot of putting the, uh, the, the carriage before the horse. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a, a lot of my development, I wish I could just kind of reverse. By the way, of course, you get into the uh, like sci-fi writers time travel conundrum. Could it have been different if it was different? <laughs> so I, because I, I think about this all the time, like with, you know, I, I wish, I wish I would have started sculpting earlier. Uh, I, I wish right. that, for instance, like I, I would have started painting a lot more without line earlier. Uh, you know, there, there's so many things that I think, oh, if, if I had just inserted that into the mechanism at an earlier stage, like imagine where I would be now, you know, I'd be, uh, painting uh, Repin's sure. Cossacks or something, or I imagine that I would have been. <laughs> <laughs> Probably it's not true. Um, but in those in those instances, do you do you have moments of true clarity where you think, 
if I, Adrian, was making a curriculum, I put, would have put X, Y, Z in this spot and, and, and another thing there? Or, or is it more just of a brush breaking, I'm going to get way better and I'm going to do this thing uh, kind of motivation? Well, the whole point behind uh, the brush breaking isn't that you're going to get better, but you feel like you won't because mm -hmm. uh, of the realization of how far off in the horizon your target really is. I did not actually break my brushes. I just abandoned uh, yeah. steps in the process that I decided were irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was helpful, at least in that regard. Uh, I think that the way that uh, the FA started with just simple bar drawings is a very practical uh, process. When I got to the FAA, I had already done uh, the three summer intensives uh, at Cecil. And so by the time I got to the FAA, they were like, well, you can control a line. You obviously know the difference between light and shadow. And so you can control your surface. And that, that that's really what the bar drawing is about. It's about controlling your line, your surface, and measuring. And if you can, you know, uh, uh, show those, if you can demonstrate that, then you can really demonstrate the point of uh, bar drawing. And so then I um, I continued cast drawing at the FAA and and, and uh, figure drawing and charcoal at the drawing uh, at the FAA. Uh, but without that backdrop, I had already had uh, the the bar uh, drawings are a very important and crucial step. No worries. I, I wish that cert certain things had been expressed better. It's not true to say that they didn't teach or emphasize structure or gesture, but I, I don't think it was expressed well. And I think it was, I think structure and gesture, which were two things that had eluded me for a really long time. And I wish that I had uh, understood them much, much sooner. And I, I, I kind of feel like illustrators need to teach those two things because they understand them uh, in a way that uh, atelier-trained people don't. And I wish that they had been expressed better. And I had to go to uh, illustrators in LA to understand, uh, to be told gesture and structure in a way that I was able to lock into my own head because they were just kind of um, vague and illusory concepts. Mm -hmm. So I can tell you, get the gesture better, but that's not going to really help you to understand mm -hmm. gesture. Sure. And so uh, I think the first time where that started to get cracked, that that misunderstanding was uh, by, I, I can't remember his name right now, but he was an animator for The Simpsons. Okay. And, uh, and, and I mean, who's gonna understand gesture better than a cartoonist? And, and but so, is this someone I, that you I, studied I, with? Someone that you worked with in, in LA? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I kept taking workshops in LA. Mm. Uh, it's a, it's a, a Los Angeles uh, uh, at that time was uh it was and is i assume a workshop based art economy whereas now that's moved largely to online and so if you were like well i mean i have a weakness in gesture let's study with that guy or i would mm -hmm. like 
I, I didn't even do at Crochet for the first time uh, until Los Angeles. Now I understand that's taught regularly at the, at the, at the FAA, and that's fantastic. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd say that a lot of my education was just like really out of order. Uh, and that's not always uh, the fault of the curriculum. A lot of that sure. was just placed on my own, you know, uh, sense of uh, uh, emphasis. But to answer your oh, question, yeah, I, I do wish I could go back in time and just kind of put all the pieces in order. Uh, I don't think uh, it would have really changed me too much as an artist, it, it, assuming that I went into art with the inspirations that I did. And eventually, yeah, you, you gather all these tools to kind of solve the 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 challenge of that inspiration. Now, um, I'm largely focused on your past because I think there's a lot of fascinating stuff uh, happening there. Um, but like, what are you kind of? What's your what's your current? Uh, not your day to day, but like, what's where are your targets? Like, what are you what are you getting up to? That's kind of driving you right now. Right now, uh, I mean, well, aside right from now, talking to be on the podcast right now, I mean, you know. Well, I'm in between projects right now. Uh, I just finished a few pieces uh, a few months ago. And right now what I'm uh, putting together is a group again, because I miss painting with a group. Uh, so I recently moved to Illinois and I am in a town where uh, I don't think that the uh, kind of uh, atelier fine art painting world has touched on too much, at least not in the way that you and I have experienced it. And I don't have a group to work with. And so I'm putting that together now. Recently, uh, we don't have professional models in the way that we had them in Los Angeles. So I had to go really old school and like put up flyers looking for models at the universities. And that actually worked really well. I, I just recently rented a really big space uh, for these kinds of functions to host a workshop. And I just kind of want to get that kind of community back together again that I had when I was in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where I'm at right now is just kind of just getting that kind of close group day-to-day -day, uh, working mm -hmm. thing back together again. Mm -hmm. I have spent the last year or two just finishing up, uh, uh, catching up on uh, ideas I've been developing for a while. And since I finished those, I'm like, okay, let's just get, you know, life back together here. Your process of, I guess, if you were in the arts, you kind of call it ideation, right? Like coming up with stuff that you want to paint. Uh, would you say mm -hmm. that's like kind of a fairly rational process? You have a theme, you kind of sort out a composition and execute it at the level that you think is 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 best for what it is. Would you say it's kind of a you kind of feel your way through a little bit more? Is it is it more rational or more feeling that that you're going by? You have to start with an idea, and by an idea, I don't mean some grand uh, concept. Mm -hmm. I just mean at the very least, a visual idea uh, and a function of where you would like to start. Because if you don't have that, you're just flailing. And then you're just basically at the grip of luck for something to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, I set up a, uh, I, I want to do something like Zorn. You have a girl 
you have it by a pool, for example. So people interacting with their environment. What I ended up with, I don't think is anything like Soren, but the point is, is I started off with something rather than having a model come over and say, well, here goes nothing. Let's hope something comes from this. So if I don't start with something like that, a touchstone of some kind, mm -hmm. uh, that's just going to be a recipe for uh, mm. chaos and frustration. So yeah, I, I have to start with a, a touchstone. So that part is rational, uh, but then there's letting uh, like the model or the moment also take its own flow at that point. So once you start with some starting point, I, I feel like you really have to let uh, the situation and the model just kind of go on their own tangent, because then otherwise you risk uh, over meddling and things start to feel stiff because you, you try taking too much control. I'm a classic so, over-meddler. Yeah. I'm a classic over-meddler. Okay. I meddle way yeah. too much. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and no, at no point is over-meddling more obvious than when the model goes on break. Because then the model settles into something that's actually natural. <laughs> right, right. And yeah. then I'm like, well, <laughs> I should have just let him just do his thing. Yeah, why didn't we start there? Why didn't we start with you doing something natural? And then, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, do yeah, over, yeah. do over. <laughs> and uh, I think that the most amazing, um, it, it was one of the most simultaneously ridiculous and amazing times where stop taking control is the right thing to do is I had this portrait commission and he's a writer he's this really amazing looking person and i kept trying to fix him force him into this position and so he sat down in a chair and i'm just kind of feeling frustrated because i'm not feeling a direction here that i am in any kind of control over and in fact my control is the problem and he starts doing this crazy thing where he starts rotating in the chair okay on his own i don't tell him to do this i just like maybe he just thought screw it nothing is happening here and he just starts rotating in the chair doing a full 360 and in that process he ended up in this perfect position where he's holding a book and he's thinking about it and he's slouched over the chair and yeah. it's great because it's totally unorthodox. Mm -hmm. And who could think of putting something in somebody in that position? Nobody. But it it totally worked. Yeah. And it was just this great <clears throat> lesson where it's just like, dude, you gotta know when to take control and you gotta know when to step back and let things take their course. And that doesn't always work, but I think it results in more interesting ideas more often than not. Yeah. And then you can take those images and just kind of riff off of them. It's, it's a it's a great issue touches on something that that uh, I think is a truism that so many artists experience. I mean, I know it because verbatim, I go through this problem. I still go through this problem all the time. In fact, up to the extent in which I consciously try to control a lack of control, like to create circumstances in which I am not driving the direction exactly 
I view it more like a like a soccer coach will view their their players. You you just want to put them in a position to succeed. You can't control mm -hmm. their movements, but if you set them out in the right way, a good outcome can be like arrived at. But I know that a part of that good outcome is me not, you know, using them like a marionette, you know. And and I think that uh, there are positive and useful ways to direct them. And I think the operative word is direct, because another time where control, not control, we're just finding that balance uh, worked, could have been better, but I felt like I was on the right path to figuring out how to make it work better, is I would say to a model, interact with your environment. And I don't mean it just like simply like that, because that in and of itself is useless, uh, but saying, okay, you are in this environment. You are, and so this is when I was working with a model uh, by a waterfall. And this was like, I was inspired by Zorn. I wanted to do some Zorn kind of stuff. The model was nude. We had a waterfall. And so thinking about like how to make this work. It's like, okay, well, at least we have an environment. At least we have a model uh, and this environment. We have a historical, an art historical kind of uh, a background for this idea already. But still, how do you get the model to feel natural in that mm -hmm. position? And so you kind of have to think about uh, saying like, don't get in this pose, but how would you interact with this it's chilly, you're alone, and you just want, you know, to swim in a pool. Of course, you can apply this to literally anything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but every time where I say, get in this pose, that mm -hmm. is just a recipe for uh, failure just pretty mm -hmm. much every time. Yeah. And so it's about getting mm -hmm. the model to work with their environment in a way that they themselves understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a tough process because that takes time to work out, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to get a lot of poses for the first hour or two that are just, they just don't work. They don't feel natural. And something that was really foundational as well to that idea is when I was painting in uh, uh, plain air and they were filming uh, off in the distance a scene for a show. I think it was one of those vampire shows. Is this Los um, Angeles? This has to be Los Angeles. <laughs> yes, yes. <Yeah. laughs> and so we first heard the scene uh, shot out where the actors, I couldn't see it, but we could hear it. It must have been just over the hill or something. The The acting was terrible. And the, the, the lines were wooden. They didn't feel convincing. The director kept saying, good, now, and he just did it again and again and again until the actor found their role. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the end of, like, I think what was probably 40 shots, it was amazing sounding. Yeah. And so I was like, this is a, this is a process you can't rush. I mean, that, like, really yeah. had an impact on me just in terms of how to set something up and how to work models. I was like, you can't rush this. Sure. You got to take your time and just let this grow. Um, yeah. So that's kind of like how I view it.
That's fantastic. That's a great, great story. And also speaks to the sometimes necessary serendipity in an artist's education. It's not that you could like go into a studio and, and get that as your as your workshop lesson, you need to be painting plain air in Los Angeles and hear a vampire show being recorded. But <laughs> exactly. How, but how <laughs> I, I have a question that's kind of a follow up to this, though. How do you manage that? Uh -huh. Now, I know you've done and do a, a lot of commissions of, uh, of people seemingly in rather important positions uh, in various organizations. It must ramp up a little bit the pressure and maybe in that the feeling to want to control how do you how do you deal with it in those situations or is it the same for you it doesn't matter i've learned to be a lot more patient mm -hmm. because um there are i'm sure as you know just there's like a catalog of workable poses mm -hmm. like you know like for example if you're doing um uh, well, for example, hands. There's only like eight or ten, eight to ten positions of a hand that actually looks any good, that actually look any good at all. And the rest of them just look like hot garbage. And so the easiest thing to do is just to open up a, a catalog of good hands, which is a Bougaro book or a Sargent book. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, I'll pick that hand and I'll pick that hand. And there really is no point in um, reinventing the wheel because you learn just screwing up on your own over and over. Like, oh, the Bouguereau and Sargent recycled the same hands over and over because there's only a few hand positions that it look good. And it's and, and also if you're doing just like the official portrait, uh, if you're doing uh, a bust. There's very few options open to you to make a bust look good, a head and shoulders uh, look good. Uh, there really aren't a lot. Uh, but then once you start incorporating the body, we still have archetype poses to work with, but the options open up. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you can start to use uh, your own judgment uh, or your sense of aesthetics a little bit more rather than depending on the catalog of poses and so you know for example we you know you, if you want uh, a politician or a judge or a, mm -hmm. a professor a tenured professor or a, a university president you have him standing with one hand on the table mm -hmm. and it works it, it's always going to work but when you're working with a full body pose you're able to be patient sit back, watch the viewer, and wait for them to enter their power pose or their uh, pose of natural uh, self-comfort. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things I wish I had done in the beginning, which is now something I do a lot more of now, I would be kind of freaked out by the person I was working with, like, oh my God, I'm working with so-and-so. And so I have to arrive at a workable pose more quickly. And mm -hmm. now uh, I just take a lot more time to do more sketches. I take a lot of photographs and I just go through them finding the images where I'm like, oh wait, this is who they are. This is their power pose or their comfort pose. And so, yeah, I just work with that a lot more. Of course, everybody, when they do commissions, you, you start out somewhere. 
were there were there particular things early on in starting to take commissions you look at and go oh somebody should have told me x y and z like uh that you should have had a contract language ready or that you some things like this yeah maybe could uh uh help people get over the hump of their first few commissions because there's so many pitfalls so many snares uh that that you can get into well i'm not going to beat myself up over the lack of you know not being patient with figuring out a pose because I think that really does just come with experience. Well, fortunately, uh, I didn't need to be told this um, sooner because I had a disaster happen that was so phenomenally awful that I didn't need to learn the lesson twice. The, okay. the lesson was so painful. It was like, oh, well, Obviously, that's not going to happen again. There was one commission. Uh, again, this was in LA. I had just come off of a good commission. I did a good job. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this was, I think this was in 2002. And I had painted this, I made this painting of Jim French. And it was inspired by the 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 painting of Henry VIII, mm -hmm. where he was a large man, but he was a very dignified man. And so I just wanted this to create this painting to create a sense of like this is a full larger than life man. And it it worked out very well. Then I got really cocky and I thought, I'm good at this. And so I uh, I then set up this other commission in this man's apartment with, and you got to understand, this is Los Angeles. So this is already a bad idea to begin with. In the land of eternal sun, this just got a lot worse. It was south light yeah. from a window to the side of him. It was such a phenomenal disaster that I didn't need to learn it again which is your paintings are only as good as your setup and your control over the environment. Control your light, control your situation. Being good at what you're doing is, is all very well and good, but if you have no control over your environment, it, it all means nothing. I didn't need to be told it by someone. I just needed to have one perfect disaster. And uh, that was it. So, not to not to like um, make you relive the trauma. But I you're... think it was funny. <laughs> I think it was funny. I mean, I'm not going to show you that painting. Don't but, have to. I mean, can keep that secret. <laughs> catastrophes can be funny. Fair enough. Fair enough. And um, I think this was one of them. Did you did you come out by the way did you come out to a conclusion you did you was there a point where you said okay hey um listen i've made a phenomenal mistake here and i need to like yeah. reset the whole that's what happened or something else oh it was just uh know what you know works yeah and make sure don't get cocky you control your environment control your setup Mm -hmm. uh, don't leave it to chance. Now, I, I know that's yeah. funny because I was just talking about other things where you got to leave it mm -hmm. to chance, but that was within the context of controlling your light, control yeah. your environment, 
Just be in control of your total process while knowing which parts to leave to chance, but know that there are going to be a number of things you're, you're not allowed to leave to chance. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that was one of them. On the, on the subject of control, one of the things that in all of the work throughout all of the years that I've seen of yours that I thought was in uh, robust quantity, uh, it does seem that, that you are very measured and very in control at every part of the process, that that must be a focus for you. Even when you started talking about uh, previous methods of, of underpainting, where you know you're securing the drawing the form the light all these things are kind of pre-calculated uh, and baked in before the the final process of painting takes place even now when you're painting quite directly uh, i still see the the echo of that same kind of control uh, is it is it really a personality thing and do you does it seem that way to you do you feel like that's taking place or is this is this kind of the view from outside I don't know how I feel about it in terms of like I am in control. I'm really just responding to things as I draw and paint them because painting is a very uh, all uh, uh, wet and dry media are follow a different uh, rule than say photography. We grew up with photography as being a representation of what's real. And so if something is a photograph, it's real. And so for that reason, and I know that, and I've known a lot of professional, really good photographers, and they're off, they're, they're going to jump down my throat, but I'm not really not uh, attacking photography. I'm attacking the fact that to the layman, if something is a photograph, it's real. And for that reason, if there is a bad design of something in a photograph, we're much more likely to let it go because, eh, you know, it's real. Mm -hmm. And so a bad hand position, like if you have a stupid hand position that has no purpose or no function and no uh, grace or, or whatever, uh, you just kind of let it go. But then you paint that. If you draw that, if you draw that from a photograph, you're like, well, this has no function. Mm -hmm. it, it does not serve the composition in any way. There's nothing nice to look at about it. And so uh, whether I'm painting from life or a photo, I'm constantly revisiting the design component of every single part of it. Uh, because once something takes shape on your canvas, you everything that you draw or paint comes back to you with, but why? Mm -hmm. Like, why did you do that? And so I'll say, well, that design looks stupid, or mm -hmm. this needs to be this, or this needs to be that. So everything is getting revisited all the time. And I think that that can go wrong. Uh, but I think for the most part, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. I think it can go wrong because I have second thought or second guessed some ideas where I didn't pick the best idea. And then I was like, oh, you know, that idea that I turned uh, away because it wasn't safe enough. That was actually the more interesting idea. Mm. And then I'll do that again and I'll be happier with it from 
you know, piece to piece to piece. I will constantly redesign everything as I go. I've, I've had, I mean, I've frequently had models return to my studio to redesign something dozens and dozens of times over until I'm happy mm. with it. That's, that sounds stressful. <laughs> I, I think that every part of a painting, every part of a painting yeah. has to have purpose. It has to have sure. function. Uh, yeah. Even if that function is, don't look at me, look at this other part, you know? Sure. Even if the function is to get the, or, uh, the viewer to look away from that thing, it has yeah. to serve a function. Yeah. Yeah, there's this, uh, it's an interesting one, the, the parallel or dichotomy that you're drawing with, uh, with, with photo photography as an art form and, and, and painting. And I've always thought that there's this, I refer to it as the burden of proof, right? That a drawing or a painting has a higher burden of proof than, than what a photograph That's does, because we accept it as, as like a facsimile of, of reality, regard, like the lighting could be incredibly flat, but you'll never think it's flat because the the, right. the photograph itself represents to you verisimilitude, right? Whereas a drawing, yes. if, if I my light is really flat, or I'm using too strong an outline around the contour of my portrait or whatever, it, it can get too flat and, 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 it, and it bothers you, it irks you, you know? But I do, I also love this idea that this question, but why? Like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Eventually, I think the answer to that why can be a very idiosyncratic one. And it's a lot about, your particular stylistic choices, aesthetic choices in artwork. And though I know that you say that you come from Rembrandt and that was the seed that kind of a lot of your inspiration grew out of. And I definitely see that very apparently in, in the strong effect of light that you're always bringing into your, your, your portraiture and your, your figurative works. I guess what I'm asking is a really boring and really dumb question. Uh, but I want to talk about your aesthetic. I, I want to talk rush to paint with. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I want to ask you about the secret medium that you use that obviously contributes to all of the paintings that you make. No, what I wanted to ask about really is, <laughs> is the um, is the particular look of your paintings. How much of it is stones being rounded in a riverbed, and how much of it is very conscious decisions that you take to to implement a look in in what you're doing or is it or is it simply it's just adrian gottlieb get over it you know and get on to the next thing <laughs> wow what if that could be an interview answer look it's just adrian okay um so one thing i um uh, I, I said earlier is that at at the faa we never knew how to begin a painting we knew how to finish it but we didn't know how to start. And it was, I, I remember there was someone in my class who turned to me, and this is someone who had been in the school for three years, at least, uh, or at least as I had been there. And he said, I don't know what I'm doing. And what helped me to get over that is that well, one is get the drawing to work first. You start there, you're in a good place. And then I just started coming up with really basic techniques to just ground myself. Because I felt like grounding myself was the most important thing in starting a painting. And I, I've always admired painters who can start a painting and as amorphous as it is, 
it looks great for its level of amorphousness. And that was never me, although I always admired it. I had to come up with something that just grounded me more. So I would, you know, get the drawing, put down black, put down the shadow, put in your highlight to create your uh, scale right away. And it's not sexy, but it works. And so I would then just build my darker shapes and build up and up and up and up uh, and, and it looks terrible, but the idea is what I put down is correct, or at least as correct as I can manage. In other words, on a surface level, there's nothing nice about it, but at least I'm creating the building blocks. And then what I've done is I've kind of warmed up to putting down the correct color in the correct place. And once I've warmed up to that, then a kind of uh, sculpture starts taking place uh, that feels much more natural to me. Mm -hmm. So before the putting the, uh, the paint uh, uh, strokes down and then leaving them as it was, was the end result. And now I'm using it as the means to an end mm -hmm. because then I break off into another technique where I'm just pushing things into shape pushing things into shape, uh, into place, I mean, uh, until they create the right shape and think, you know, I, I start to lose or build the edges that I want. Yeah, it's starting from this really rocky looking kind of fragmentation. And I just kind of build it closer and closer to the surface quality that I'm looking for. Yeah. And uh, I put up uh, in one of the few videos that I ever made, it was like a quick painting where I edited out all the slow parts. Uh, I put it up on Instagram. It was a painting of a bearded man where you can see where I just mass in the darks and then the, the, the drawing. And then you can see the, the, the shapes of the color and put it down are really crude. It doesn't look nice as an end, but then you can see how I just kind of start uh, working those into place. I don't, yeah. did that answer anything? Well, I think it it speaks to the, the the way that you kind of visualize your your process that that you would call it crude from from your view. I, I wonder I wonder if a lot of us from outside might look at it and think, oh, that's quite sophisticated what he's done there. And <laughs> might be might be quite impressed with it. But it's always interesting to hear an artist kind of describe like their their feelings about how they perform at at in different skills within like the whole, I guess. So there's a lot of different things that that make up a painter making good paintings, right? You know, uh, to, you know, to just break it down and say there's there's drawing and painting it is the first way to kind of separate that out, but also talking about how how you perceive things at different stages. And also very interesting that that you feel like that that first stage was was such a big um, was such a big issue. You know, Louis CK. Yeah, the, the comedian. He said, "Well, I've given. Uh, I learned uh, to love my body, and all I had to do was just learn to love this terrible, terrible body. <laughs> and for uh, for me, uh, uh, I just learned to be okay with these crude starts. Yeah. I I saw it as a, at least for me, just a step on the process." that when I start laying in paint, it's going to look ugly. 
-hmm. And just I did, and just to remember, just to remind myself that you know, given enough time to work it out, it works itself out in the end, mm -hmm. and it always has. So stop worrying so much that this one stage in a mm -hmm. painting doesn't look good to you if you know that it is. It has always been one step on the process to something that works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could it be better? Yeah, sure, but. I, I also think that I'm okay with the system because if I'm putting down the right color uh, and the right value in the right place, well, that's very useful. Yeah. If it was the wrong color and the wrong value in the wrong place, that wouldn't be useful at all. Uh, yeah. So it, it was just about learning to love my terrible, terrible step in that process. <laughs> Adrian, I love that. Do you, by the way, um, with some guests, I ask like if, if there's anything that you wanted to plug, if there's anything coming up for you that, that you wanted to mention, um, uh, I make kind of a space at the end for that. Um, is there anything or, or um, you're just like, I don't care, you just want to be here? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not sure who you would reach uh, uh, right now. Uh, We're not big right in now, Illinois. Like We're not big in Illinois. So uh, <laughs> getting people to the in-person uh, painting group with you might not be uh, might not work. But I would imagine people are going to flood in to, to paint with somebody like you. That opportunity is not floating around very, uh, very frequently. Well, sure. Why not? And, and you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll put this on Instagram, too. So, you know, it can reach people, too, I hope, uh, which is I'm doing a uh, a four-day portrait workshop on uh, March uh, 6 to March 9 from 6 to 9 p.m. It's really, I just really want people to come in and join and paint with me. I'll give some tips and, uh, you know, I, I just hope, you know, I can bring something here that people will find useful. And this is an opportunity to meet and come by if you can. Adrian, listen, I appreciate so much your time uh, uh, and the stories. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. So that wraps up this episode of the Atelier Forum podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to get to know more about Adrian Gottlieb or his work, you can find links in the show notes at stephenbaumanartwork.com slash Atelier Forum podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Also, I want to say thank you to Test Dream for letting us use your music as the theme song for this show. And that's about it. I'm Stephen Bauman, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.